0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The six-week refinery workers' strike saw environmental advocates and labor on the picket lines together, making common cause for better safety conditions and the transition away from fossil fuels.
1: Even in an era where we know we have to dramatically reduce carbon emissions quickly, no worker, no coal miner, no fossil fuel worker
0: should be the roadkill along that path. A call for fair play for workers caught in the winds of climate change. Also, how one woman's fight for clean air got a whole town resettled. And another visit to the place where you live, Omaha, Nebraska.
2: How nice we say here. And then returning to our work in the corn and soy and parking lot fields of eastern Nebraska go about our day. We'll have
0: that
3: and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. At 12 million barrels a day, the U.S. is the world's leading oil producer, with much of the boost due to fracking technology. With pipelines at capacity, the boom has led to a 4,000% increase in the volume of crude oil that travels by rail. And that brought more accidents and more oil spills in 2014 than over the previous 38 years. Just these past five weeks brought five more derailments, with huge fires and polluted waterways. And some critics say new rail safety rules on the drawing boards won't go far enough to protect the public or the environment. Steve Kretzman is executive director and founder of Oil Change International. Welcome
4: to Living on Earth, Steve. Thanks so much for having me here, Steve. It's great to be back.
0: Now, what we're seeing is a lot of crashes and explosions. What's happening?
4: So we're seeing, unfortunately, a very visible result of the all the above energy policy playing out with great risks to our communities around North America on a whole, the Bakken oil is very light oil and it's very explosive, it turns out. And people have known this, but it hasn't really stopped them from shipping it via rail. And it's also worth noting that because that oil is the light oil that's mixed in with tar sands to form diluted bitumen, which is usually the way tar sands get to market, we're also seeing tar sands trains now explode. And so They're just trying to get as much out as fast as they can and maximize their profit. And as we know, the oil market is flooded with crude now. And effectively, we're subsidizing that with our safety and our communities and our lives.
0: Now, in Texas, where there's a fair amount of fracking for oil, there are machines that remove the most volatile portion, the most explosive part of fracked oil before it is shipped. But in North Dakota... It is not. Why this discrepancy? Why don't they make this safety precaution in North Dakota?
4: Well, it's about profit. It's about investment in infrastructure by the industry. So the production in Texas is very close to markets. And so when they invest in the infrastructure to remove the lighter petroleum product, natural gas, among other things, they can then sell that oil because they can put it into pipelines. On the other hand, North Dakota does not have those gas pipelines. And the infrastructure is not there to capture it. And so their options are burn it, or try to force it into the tank car, which is what they're doing. Um, There are new regulations that are supposed to take effect from North Dakota that will reduce the sort of amount that they can squeeze in there on a regular basis. But it's not clear that the regulation is in line with what will actually create a safe car. Um, It's just slightly less than they've been able to get away with.
0: Talk to me about the new tanker safety rules and how effective they might be in preventing the kind of explosions we've seen on oil train derailments.
4: So it's not clear what the new rules are going to be. There are the North Dakota rules, which are a slight reduction in vapor pressure. And then there are the federal rules, which are under consideration by the Obama administration, and we're going to see another draft of those supposedly within the next month. But there are various different options that they can take. They could build... Thicker walled oil trains, they could require that, but the oil industry doesn't like that because it costs them more money. They could install electronically controlled pneumatic brakes on the rail cars, but the rail industry doesn't like that because it costs them too much money. One of the most effective things they could do is introduce a very serious speed limit. You know, the dot 111s, the old cars, still make up the majority of the crewed by rail fleet, they've been shown to explode at seven miles an hour. The 1232s, which are the newer, supposedly safer cars, but are the ones that have been involved in each one of these accidents recently, have been shown to explode at 15 miles an hour. So we say you should put in serious restrictions here. All new cars, speed limits you know, at 15 or below, particularly in populated areas. You know, the industry gets very upset about that and says, oh, my God, that would mean we would have to stop production. And, you know, the point is, yeah, maybe actually reducing some production in the name of public safety is worth it here. So you mentioned the
0: communities are at risk from these uh, crude oil trains. What ones come to mind for you?
4: So when you look at the map of where crude oil trains are going around the United States, it's very clear. You start looking at the routes. Minneapolis, Chicago, St. Louis, New York, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Detroit, all these cities have crewed by rail trains, these bomb trains, running right through them. You know, 25 million Americans live within the blast zone here. And it's sadly not a question of if, but when, One of these explosions is going to result in a tremendous, tremendous tragedy. You know, we have the opportunity to slow this down and put a moratorium in place before this happens, and we should take it.
0: That was Steve Kretzmann of Oil Change International. Well, a moratorium on oil transport by rail is unlikely, and the Obama administration has yet to issue new rules, even after two years of work. So, in the face of the recent accidents, is issued some emergency rules, and here to explain is Sarah Feinberg, the acting administrator for the Federal Railroad Administration. Welcome to the program.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: So, what do you have in place now in terms of emergency regulations then, emergency rules?
5: Well, we have a lot. We have a requirement of railroads to share information about the product that's being transported with emergency responders in each state. We have an emergency order that's in place regarding testing and making sure that the right tank car and right packaging is being used for each product. You know, over the course of the two years that I've, or a year and a half that I've worked on this issue, we were enforcing against violations for not testing the product properly, not packing it in the right container not handling it the right way, not sharing safety information about it. I'm not saying things are in a good place now. They certainly aren't. We've got a long way to go. But when I think back to where we were a year and a half ago, it's amazing to me that we were actually having a conversation about testing then.
0: Now, not long ago, there was a dramatic explosive derailment in West Virginia that involved the new kind of cars, the supposedly safer cars. And some folks are saying that Apparently those cars aren't safe enough. What do you say?
5: Well, it's really important to understand the different kinds of cars that are out there. The one we hear about a lot is the 111. That is the older tank car. I think everyone agrees across the board that that tank car is certainly outdated. It's not safe enough to hold this product or others. Industry on its own, a few years ago, came up with their own new version of a tank car. That's called the 1232. While it is a better tank car and it's a newer version of a tank car, One person on my team once referred to the 1232 as the 111 with a five-mile-per-hour bumper on it. So it's a Pinto with a better bumper instead of just a Pinto. The other most important thing to think about is that all 1232s are not the same. They didn't have all of the safety components that they could have had. They didn't have a jacket. They didn't have a thermal shield. These are important components to keep a tank car from basically experiencing those thermal events that create fireballs.
0: No matter what kind of car it is, they're going off the rails. Some folks say that the trains are just simply traveling too fast.
5: Look, I mean, speed should be a factor, but the reality is, is that in all of these derailments, they've been very low speed. In fact, the agreements that we have in place at the railroads limit speed at 40 miles an hour we've now in a position where we've got railroads functioning below the maximum speed and we're still running into problems. There is not a tank car at this moment or even the new version of the tank car that we've proposed that will survive a derailment above, say, 16 or 18 miles an hour. So that's one of the reasons why this issue is so complicated. There is literally not a silver bullet, it's not speed, it's not a particular tank car, it's not the way the train is operated. You know, it's all of the above, and it needs to include, frankly, the product that's also being placed into transport, the product that's leaving the back and then heading to the refineries.
0: How safe is it to allow such volatile fuel to be transported on
5: rails? I mean, if I have to be honest, I would prefer that none of this stuff be traveling by rail. I worry a lot about not just the folks who are working on the train and the passengers on the Amtrak that the train is going by, but I worry a lot about the people living in the towns and working in the towns that these trains are going through. Now, we have some routing protocols in place. There is a whole software system that the railroads use when they are trying to determine the right route to take for a substance like this. so it looks things like city size, it looks at possible defects on rail, it looks at weather, it looks at speed, it looks at traffic, it looks at all of those factors, and it basically spits out the the best route for you to take.
0: Industry a few days ago went over to the Office of Management of the budget, the folks who review the rulemaking there inside OMB, and made a lot of complaints about the proposal to have, this updated form of breaking. They say, oh, it won't have more significant safety benefits. It won't have much in the way of business benefits and be extremely costly. Sounds like industry is pushing back against getting this stuff under control. Your take?
5: sure and i expect that look I, you know omb meets with industry and but the fra is required to meet with all interested parties as well so as many meetings as i did with industry i think we all did with the environmental community small town mayors governors interested members of congress so there're a whole lot of folks with a dog in this fight and they all want to talk to the regulator and they all want to talk to the office of management and budget to affect the outcome of the rule I think at the end of the day, it's OMB's job and it's FRA's job to come up with the best possible rule that we can that will actually address the challenge. To be clear, that's not an easy thing to do right now. It's a bit amazing at this point that you can take a common-sense safety measure and watch the amount of time that it could actually take to turn into a regulation, but you know, that's my frustration. and <laughs> that's, that's our problem and our issue to deal with, and the main thing is we should just be keeping people safe.
0: Sarah Feinberg is the Acting Administrator for the Federal Railroad Administration. Thanks so much for taking the time today.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: We asked the Association of American Railroads for comment on the proposed new regulations. Spokesman Ed Greenberg's reply is posted in full at our website, LOE.org. It reads in part, America's rail industry believes final regulations on new tank car standards by the federal government would provide certainty for the freight rail industry and shippers and chart a new course in the safe movement of crude oil by rail. Oil refineries are inherently dangerous places to work, plagued by leaks and explosions, and safety conditions were at the heart of the six-week workers' strike that was recently settled with a tentative agreement the union workers on the picket line also won support from a number of environmental organizations, demonstrating an important alliance between those groups. To discuss these developments, we're joined now by Joe Uline, Executive Director of the Labor Network for Sustainability. Welcome to Living on Earth, Joe. Thanks. Now, your organization, the Labor Network for Sustainability, put out a call for environmental organizations to support this strike. Why did you do that? Well, we did it because...
1: You know, historically, the big shell strike in 1973 was a turning point in labor environmental engagement. You know, we had just had Earth Day, uh, 1970, I think, was the first Earth Day. And then 73, this big strike hits in the oil industry. And there was a, a lot of support from environmental groups. I mean, they won the strike, but then there was also this deeper level of engagement, between labor and environmental movements. So whenever these kind of things happen, in this case, it was clear cut, and we came out quickly with a call for support because we need to continue to deepen those relationships, especially in an era of, you know, really runaway global warming and climate change, which no one was thinking about in 1973.
0: Now, which uh, organizations, which environmental organizations responded to the call this time?
1: Well... Oil Change International, Friends of the Earth, and the Sierra Club, they were all right there real quick with really good statements. Bill McKibben from 350.org, he was right there with a great statement. And there were others, both local environmental groups in the areas where these refineries are, as well as statewide and national organizations.
0: Even with this history, we don't often hear stories about collaboration between labor and environmental communities. For example, in Appalachia, you have the United Mine Workers Union very concerned about the carbon regulation, environmental regulation, and a number of environmental groups who aren't very interested in protecting coal mining jobs. So, history of tension here.
1: Yeah. Even in an era where we know we have to dramatically reduce carbon emissions quickly, no worker No coal miner, no fossil fuel worker should be the roadkill along that path. We should be fighting for just transition programs and strategies to provide for those workers and communities that might be hurt by a transition to a clean, renewable energy regime. And we're only going to win those if labor and environmentalists fight together for that. So, you know, we're always working with environmental organizations to get past what I call their well-earned reputation of being insensitive to working people's concerns. And you get past that by really trying to understand the primacy of work in people's lives, understanding it, honoring it, and then fighting to protect those who are going to be damaged by these transitions. We've seen it with globalization and the loss of our industrial base, where tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of workers who had good-paying jobs in major industry with health care and pensions lost it all. We need to change that past paradigm and provide a real, you know, sort of a GI Bill of Rights kind of program for working people and help them transition into something different. It doesn't have to be that they transitioned into renewable energy. It might be that. But the transition can be into other industries. They just have to be good ones that pay family-supporting jobs. That's the fight. And that's the linkage between environmental and climate activism and addressing income inequality.
0: So what are you guys doing to try to bring labor and the environmental movement closer together?
1: Oh, we're doing a lot. We talk a lot about all the industries that are in transition and how to do that in a just way. We're always talking to labor people about the importance of understanding the climate crisis and the impact it's going to have on labor. Climate change is the real job killer. If we don't address it, a lot of jobs are going to be lost.
0: What are the jobs that are going to be lost by climate change?
1: Well, think about I mean, in Maryland, you know, we have thousands of miles of coastline, and the ports, those jobs are going to be lost. The agriculture in the southern part of the state, which is all very low-lying land, that's going to be lost. Most of our major airports are at sea level. They're all going to be impacted. All the roads to and from the ports, that's going to get shut down with more intense storms, more frequency of storms and just rising sea level itself. So the job loss is going to be immense. Even as temperatures rise, productivity goes down in construction across the board. So on the flip side, then, we're working on a study right now of how to create climate-friendly jobs quickly. And I say quickly because This study will not only identify the clean energy jobs. It will do that, solar, wind, geothermal, and others. But we also have to create jobs that are like shovel-ready now and put people to work. And that gets to the other industries that are in transition that we need to be focusing on. For example? Well, for example, agriculture and food. We live in a country with one of the most abundant food supplies on the planet, And it's hard to imagine a country that could mismanage it worse than we have. It all needs to be redone. Our whole way of agriculture and supplying food is in transition now, has been for a decade. If we think about Kentucky's history, hemp used to be the largest agricultural crop in the state. We're living in an era of legalization of the cannabis plant, which includes hemp. Let's get it back in there in Kentucky. Let's start to produce and put those miners to work with hemp and hemp-related products. Think broadly is the point. Education. You know, if you've got kids in school, you know that if the class size is 25, you're lucky. There should be 10 kids a class. We should employ twice the number of teachers and pay them more, and we can do it. What the opponents always say is we can't afford it. We could put solar panels on every residence in the United States for the cost of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. We have the money. We just need to redirect it and put our minds to using it in a better way.
0: Joe Uline is the executive director of the Labor Network for Sustainability. Thanks for joining us, Joe.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, one town on the front lines of the oil workers' strike was Norco, Louisiana, home to a refinery and a shell chemical plant. Pollution and safety concerns are hardly breaking news in Norco. Forty years ago, residents were complaining about fumes from the plant and health problems, and eventually many residents were relocated, largely thanks to the efforts of a retired schoolteacher. But such worries aren't obsolete. Shell plans a new chemical plant in Beaver County, Pennsylvania, to make plastics using the copious local supply of Marcellus shale oil. And as Reed Fraser of the Pennsylvania Public Radio program, The Allegheny Front, reports, the determination of one woman in Norco years ago has lessons for residents of Beaver County
6: today. Margie Richard is walking on a street with no houses anymore, just lawns.
7: But that's the backyard of my, my mom and dad house, which was right there, and my mobile home, which was over here.
6: This is Norco, Louisiana. We're about 300 yards from the Mississippi River, 20 miles or so upriver from New Orleans. Richard is a 71-year-old former schoolteacher. She points to a tree where her mom used to sit.
7: She liked to sit outside, but it got to a point she couldn't sit outside because the fumes was always gas. She had to go inside.
6: The fumes she's talking about were coming from a petrochemical plant owned by Shell a few feet away. Shell built a refinery here in 1916. The New Orleans Refining Company, or NORCO, ran the facility, and eventually the town adopted the name as its own. In the 1950s, Shell built a chemical plant near the refinery in an all-black part of NORCO called Diamond. Richard grew up next to the plant, but years later, she would lead a fight to have the company relocate the neighborhood that she grew up in. As a child, she grew up smelling foul odors from the plant that she likened to bleach. She also remembers people in the town suffered from health problems, which she blamed on those fumes.
7: Everybody within these two streets had breathing machines in their house.
6: Then one day in 1973, a teenager named Leroy Jones started a lawnmower a few feet from a leaking pipeline, sparking an explosion. It killed an elderly woman who lived nearby. Her name was Helen Washington. Richard remembers the scene vividly.
7: And there on the ground was Miss Helen, who lived in the house under sheet. And I could smell the, you could smell her hair.
6: It was just awful. This was a turning point both for the town and for Richard. She began taking stock of the health problems experienced by people in her neighborhood. Her sister contracted a rare inflammatory disease called sarcoidosis. But the symptoms were so common, her sister didn't realize she had the disease until it was too late.
7: It's like an allergy. You think you got sinus or whatever. Certain times of the year, seasonal change.
6: Though there's disagreement over what causes the rare disease her sister had, some scientists think chemical exposures can trigger it. Richard suspects that was the case for her sister, Naomi, who died at the age of 43. Then in 1988 another explosion happened. This time it was at Shell's oil refinery in Norco. The blast killed seven workers and damaged walls and buildings around the town. It was so strong it set off alarms in New Orleans, 25 miles away. Richard decided to fight Shell to get the company to relocate residents away from both plants. Richard helped bring in an environmental group that monitored air emissions with five gallon buckets.
7: We learned how to capture the air, how to,
6: to have statistical reports. The group detected chemicals in the air that Shell had never reported to the state's environmental agency. This caught the attention of the press and regulators. Before long, Richard was being asked to share her findings. She spoke before the UN in the Netherlands, where she confronted a high-ranking Shell executive. She remembers the meeting in which he brought a sample of air taken from Norco.
7: I stood before at the United Nations with my bag of polluted air.
6: And she asked the executive, would he like to breathe the air? The gambit worked. A few weeks later, another executive from Shell knocked on the door of her trailer in Norco, wanting to talk. Soon, the company was offering to buy people's houses near the chemical plant with a minimum offer of $80,000. More than 300 families took the buyout, including Richard's. Throughout the campaign, Shell denied that its plant made people in Norco sick. And though it's the subject of much debate, there's no scientific proof that Louisiana's chemical industry has anything to do with the state's high incidence of cancer. According to the CDC, Louisiana has the second highest cancer rate in the country. A Shell spokeswoman says the decision to buy out homes was in no way related to health concerns, but part of a longer-term effort to create a green belt around the chemical plant. Still, even industry backers say big chemical plants in Louisiana are better neighbors these days than they were a generation ago when Richard was fighting Shell.
8: The industry recognized that it had to do a better job communicating with and listening to the citizens who lived in the communities
6: around them. Tim Johnson is a public affairs consultant to the petrochemical industry in Louisiana. He says experiences like those at Norco have been part of an evolution the industry has undergone in the past 25 years. Part of this had to do with companies simply wanting to do the right thing. But he even admits part of it was because they were forced to.
8: You have to be honest to say that a lot of the improvements they've, been, they've made have been as a result of regulations.
6: These improvements have cut toxic air releases in Louisiana by about half of what they were in the early 1990s. The EPA now has a program to ensure that black and other minority neighborhoods, like the Diamond section in Norco, aren't subjected to inordinate amounts of industrial pollution. Today, Diamond, the neighborhood where Margie Richard grew up, is quiet, except for the hum of Shell's chemical plant. About 40 families stayed here, Instead of being relocated, they received a home improvement grant from Shell. One man who stayed behind is Lionel Brown. On a Saturday afternoon, Brown tinkers with his brother's pickup truck in his driveway.
3: I saw no reason to move.
0: Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't want to sell. And then first of all, he wasn't giving enough money for what I had.
6: What he had was a house and four adjacent lots. Now that air monitors have been installed in the neighborhood, he's also not so worried about pollution. Brown works at a nearby chemical plant for Dow. That makes him feel safer about living next to the shell plant, even though he knows the chemicals made at his job are dangerous.
3: Uh, They make stuff that'll kill you. (laughs) I'm big, you know,
0: but everything is contained.
6: Margie Richard now lives 15 minutes away from Norco. She thinks community leaders in Pennsylvania need to pay attention to what Shell is considering for Beaver County.
7: You should have input in what is going on.
6: She says it took decades, but Richard thinks the town and the company finally learned this lesson.
0: That's Reed Frazier at the Allegheny Front. This story was supported by the Fund for Investigative Journalism. We head off to the prairie now for another installment in the occasional Living on Earth Orion Magazine series, The Place Where You Live. Orion invites readers to put their homes on the map and submit essays to the magazine's website, and now we're giving them a voice. Your special place doesn't have to be exotic. It can be ordinary and workaday, but it's still home.
2: My name is Patrick Manelli. I live in Omaha, Nebraska. I've lived here for uh, 30 years now. This is farmland, and it was, some of this was floodplain years ago. There are some hills and treed areas right along the river, but other than that, it gets quite flat very fast. Omaha is a very urban area, so once upon a time, there were farmers living around here, but most of them have moved farther west or further north, so People do the same thing in Omaha that they do in all cities, which is, you know, drive to an office and sit in a chair. The essay kind of just chronicles a a, a regular, average Wednesday morning for me, which involved you know, waking up decently early, drinking some coffee, um, regarding the morning, and then driving to work. You know, the part of town that we live in, we're really attracted to. It's an older, lower income part of the city, but we like especially that it's just so dynamic, and there are so many different people here, and part of the essay captures that because as I drive down the few miles of road to the place where I work, i pass so many different businesses and so many different lives, which for me offers a kind of wildness to the place, or at least some sort of dynamic that I can appreciate, even though there's little natural things to be seen here. Here's my essay about Omaha, Nebraska. It's Wednesday here, And when the sun comes up its rays lance the stubborn cloud and trace pastels over land so flat and featureless that to follow the light down any road, in any direction, is to find only more and more and more of a world that is inexorably the same. We can call it beautiful, though, this lazy play among the groggy hours, just as you are prone to do seeing the same early light come to fall among the mountains and oceans and prehistoric forests that perhaps you call home. How nice, we say here, and then returning to our work in the corn and soy and parking lot fields of eastern Nebraska go about our day. When humans were first humans on the grass plains of Africa, they enjoyed a bareness of land similar to ours here. Today there is still a very old comfort to be had in waking up among the austerity of grass. We remember falling asleep with no trees to interrupt the stars, moving easily in small bands across the open plain, standing on hind legs, peeking above the seed heads, spying the lion a mile before she'd crept near enough to draw blood. Driving to work on Wednesday morning I see, at thirty miles an hour, a few dozen Canada geese trimming a lake that was once the water hazard of a golf course, but is now, following certain economic declines, only a lake. Down Ames Avenue I pass Phil's Foodway, Jim's Ribhaven, Doc's Lounge, Youngblood's Barbershop, Mid-K Beauty Supply, and the rough-hewn faces of churches I will admire but never enter. Although I love these places, and love the fact that humanity has traveled halfway around the globe just to clean the floors and stock the shelves of B.J.'s Gas and Beer, I am lonely for the grass. At the community college where I work, I leave my car and pass the now frozen leaves of ancient, landscaped trees. Today, just like yesterday before, everything has changed. If only we had lived long enough to recognize the difference. I think that, to some extent, we're all attracted to absences. And when you live in the Midwest, you get reminded of absence wherever you look, because the landscape has been changed so much by agriculture and by industry. As far as we know, humans are the only animals capable of nostalgia. Sometimes it can feel like a drag to have been born into a time of such change and so much depletion. But to some extent, this is just a very human way of looking at things. Mountains and mayflies don't have this problem. We live just long enough, apparently.
0: That's Patrick Minelli from Omaha, Nebraska, and you can tell us about the place where you live if you like. There's more about Orion Magazine and how to submit your essay at loe.org. Coming up, how one of the world's great natural engineers might help ease
3: the drought in the West. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. Time to head off to Conyers, Georgia, to check out the week beyond the headlines.
0: Peter Dykstra with Environmental Health News at EHN.org and the DailyClimate.org has been delving into that world, and he's on the line now. Hi there, Peter.
8: Well, hi, Steve. Are you ready for a little good news? Spring's starting, so we're going to let hope spring eternally, at least just a little.
0: Well, we're always up for that, particularly after the record breaking snows here in Boston.
8: Year after year, the amount of carbon we throw into the atmosphere tends to mirror the state of the global economy. Economic downturn, fewer carbon emissions, economic boom times, carbon goes boom too, accelerating climate change impacts. But according to the International Energy Agency, in 2014, global carbon emissions flatlined, pretty much the same as 2013, while the economy grew by 3% worldwide.
0: So that flies against the conventional wisdom that some people hold that you can't protect the climate and grow the economy at the same time. What do you think is happening to cause this?
8: Oh, A lot of things, Steve. Renewables like wind and solar still face some challenges, but the long-time predictions for a breakthrough seem finally to be arriving. And energy efficiency is scoring big, quiet victories in both industrialized and developing nations. One year of flatlining does not a trend or solution make, but it's a promising step.
0: So fingers crossed.
8: Exactly. On top of a little good news for carbon, I'm seeing good news from the news. A couple of organizations with global influence are wide awake on climate change, The Guardian and The Washington Post. Over in the UK, the longtime editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, is about to step down. And that, of course, is time to think about one's legacy. Rusbridger says he didn't want to leave without seeing The Guardian go all out to cover climate change.
0: But hasn't The Guardian always paid a lot of attention to climate and the environment?
8: They have, but this is different. Alan Rusbridger says that climate is the most important story of our time, and for once his newspaper and website are covering it like it is.
0: And what about the Washington Post?
8: You know, I lived in Washington for 12 years, and The Post was my hometown newspaper and had a reputation for being very provincial about the federal government. If you were an environment reporter, you didn't cover the environment, you covered the EPA. But recently, The Post, under new ownership and new editors, is treating the world like it's even bigger and rounder than the Capitol Beltway. A new energy and environment page on the website and a strong expanded team reporting globally on energy and environment. Even if newspapers are in decline, other news organizations still take their cues from big guys like The Post and The New York Times. And maybe the biggest cue of all came a couple of years ago when The Post elevated a veteran environment writer, Juliet Eilperin, to the prestigious White House beat, suggesting that covering the environment isn't a dead-end punishment for up-and-coming journalists.
0: Well, some of us seem to enjoy that dead-end punishment, like you and me. And, you know, I've always thought climate was the biggest story. Still is. Hey, what do you have from the history file this week?
8: Steve, 20 years ago this week, gray wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park in what has been described ever since as a classic success story of restoring an ecosystem. In some places, hunters and ranchers don't like wolves because they can prey on game animals or livestock. But you know what animal likes wolves?
0: Uh, Let's see, I'd say other wolves, but that's probably not the right answer.
8: No, beavers. Beavers? Beavers. In a place like the protected ecosystem of Yellowstone, wildlife experts say it works like this. Wolves are a key predator to elk. No wolves in Yellowstone, the elk thrive, and when they thrive, they eat a lot of waterside vegetation, including young willow and cottonwood trees. Beavers also like willow and cottonwood, but the elk outcompete the beavers. Add wolves back into the mix, there are fewer elk, so what do they do with all that surplus vegetation?
0: They leave it to beavers.
8: Exactly. So 20 years later, wolves are thriving, elk are in balance, and the beavers have come back too. Outside of Yellowstone, where there's a thriving human population and a commercial stake in elk hunting, wolves aren't widely popular. The state of Idaho just wrapped up a population control hunt in which 19 wolves were shot from helicopters, and the legislature just approved $400,000 to do it again in 2016. Gee,
0: Peter, after all that hope, thanks for leaving us on a low note. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. at ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.
8: All right, Steve. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon.
0: And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. Well, if we were to leave it to beavers, some of the effects could be downright breathtaking. Out in the American West, beavers once numbered in the millions before European fur trappers arrived. But by the end of the 19th century, the beaver and their dams were all but gone, allowing the West to be won by farmers and ranchers now in places the beaver are being restored to their rightful habitat and helping to restore watersheds in the drought-ridden West. Sarah Konigsberg, a Washington-based filmmaker, has documented the efforts and successes of a half a dozen beaver believers who are working hard to bring the big-tailed and buck-toothed rodents back. She took time from editing her video to talk about them.
9: Well, in our film, The Beaver Believers, we feature the stories of a biologist, a hydrologist, a botanist, an activist, a psychologist, and a hairdresser. So these are all very different individuals who just share the common passion of restoring beaver to the West. Some work within the federal agencies, the Forest Service. Others are just average citizens who stumbled upon to the cause accidentally and have found a fulfilling life doing something that they believe in.
0: You have a person who says she's a hairdresser. And she says, oh, she's not any kind of outdoorsy person, but yet she's out there live trapping and relocating beaver and saying that this is the most exciting and satisfying thing she's ever done.
9: Yep, that's Sherry Tippy. She is a hairdresser in Colorado. And it's true. Her nails are done. Her hair is done. She's got perfect makeup on when she comes to do her interview or give a speech. But when it's beaver trapping time, she is waist deep In mucky, muddy, messy water, she's slogging around, and she's just picking those beavers up and cuddling them and loving on them and sharing the good work that they do. She stumbled upon beaver totally by accident. She started out just as an animal lover. She heard of some beavers that were going to be killed simply because they were in an urban environment, and she thought that was wrong, so she decided to do something about it. She's now the leading live trapper in all of Colorado. I think what she shows us is we don't need to have these rigid boundaries of outdoorsy person or environmentalist. We can all find a cause and get active on it. Why
0: did you decide to make this film?
9: Well, in my own work, I've been looking for new climate change narratives, ways that we can relate to it and actually feel like we are accomplishing something. Most of the climate change narratives we hear about are very apocalyptic. They're these huge doom and gloom stories. And it seems that there's very little we can do as individuals. So what struck me with all of these beaver believers is that they are working on the problem of water, which is one of the biggest problems with climate change but it's very tangible. They're working at the level of their own watershed. And while they do work very hard, they're finding great joy and satisfaction in this work. So they're almost seeing climate change as an opportunity to act, to get involved, to fix problems we've actually had in our watersheds for several decades now. That just struck me as exactly the kind of inspiring climate change story that we really need to be telling.
0: Now, there's a finite supply of water in the drought-ridden American West, and beaver can't increase that water supply. What can beaver do to help the
9: water situation there? Yeah, you're correct. Beavers certainly don't make more water. But what they do is they redistribute the water that does fall down onto the landscape. So if you picture spring floods, all that water that comes rushing down in March or April just goes straight through the channels and out to the ocean. What beavers do is they almost act like another snowpack reserve. Whether it's rain or snow runoff, all of that water can slow way down behind a beaver pond, and then it slowly starts to sink into the ground. It stretches outward, making a big recharge of the aquifer, and then that water ever so slowly seeps back into the stream throughout the rest of the spring and summer, As it's needed so that we end up with water in our stream systems in July and August when there is no longer rainfall in much of the West and when it's incredibly hot and our streams are beginning to run dry.
0: I want a bit of the backstory here. When settlers arrived in North America a few hundred years ago, there were, well, zillions of beaver. What happened?
9: Well, basically, as the West was being developed, there was a race to establish territory. And beaver pelts were the currency at the time. So people began to realize if they turned it into a fur desert, if they eradicated every single beaver, they would be removing the value in that land so people could come in and claim their stake. Unknowingly, they began to cause great ecological harm. There actually are records in some trappers' journals towards the end of that trapping heyday where they began to realize the mistake that they'd made as they did start to watch stream ecosystems start to crumble.
0: So people were trying to eradicate the beaver. didn't quite happen, although I gather in the 1950s, the Army Corps of Engineers was supposed to, in fact, completely finish off the beaver.
9: There was another campaign as we came in with our slightly off-kilter logic that The best thing to do would be to get the water from the mountains downstream to reservoirs as quickly as possible. So there was an effort by the Army Corps to straighten a lot of stream channels. Well, that's the exact opposite of what beavers do. They are all about complexity and meanders and letting the water make its way down ever so slowly. So there was another campaign to try to get rid of the beavers, which were only seen as a nuisance, to get the water down in the irrigation systems as quickly as possible.
0: So the landscape has really changed. How do they fit into today's landscape?
9: The landscape has changed. We have a lot of incised streams. That means that the bottom has cut down, so the stream looks like it's caught in a canyon. In all those areas, that means the water table has dropped that low. So when you have these areas with deep incised streams, there's no water in that soil until you get all the way down as deep as the bottom of the stream bed. So there's not any water for most of the vegetation on top. What beavers can do is even if they start building a dam way down at the bottom, slowly that dam will trap sediment. And ever so slowly, the bottom of the stream channel will rise back up. And then the beavers have to build their dam higher and then it catches more sediment and rises up again. So there's areas where we've seen stream channels rise up two, three meters in just a couple of years.
0: Beaver evolved side by side with other animals and plant life and that ecosystem there. How did this ability of, of beaver to slow down the runoff of water affect other species, salmon, for example?
9: Ah, it's greatly beneficial. As you said, all of those species co-evolved. And so without the beavers, the stream systems have become much more simple. And simplicity is not what we want. We want complexity. We want a very rich, biodiverse habitat and suite of species. So with the beavers coming back, instead of just a shoot of water going straight down the stream, now we have pools. And along the edges of the pools, there are some really shallow, slow-moving areas for amphibians, little froggies and insects, rushing cooler areas as the water comes spilling through the dam. There's a plunge pool at the base of the dam where the water has some more force and it's scoured out a little bit of area at the bottom. So you have areas of rapid current, slow current. You have a great variation in temperatures from warm to cool. And it basically creates a much more varied habitat for many, many more animals to live on. Uh, There's a phrase, beavers taught salmon how to jump. And it's quite true. It's amazing. You'll see salmon jumping over dams. You'll see littler ones wiggling their way through it, somehow swimming right up through the middle in between the sticks. The dams can provide areas for juvenile fish to rest. They could be off to the side where there's less current, but they could be right at the edge of an area that does have current. So as insects or food sweep by, the fish can more easily stick out their little mouth and grab them. They have areas to hide from predators. Also then there's a lot more vegetation that can grow on the sides. So there's areas the fish can rest in the shade and not warm up and overheat.
0: Sarah, what does it mean to think like a beaver?
9: Yes, one of the themes in my piece that I really love is called thinking like a beaver. And what that means to us is learning to discover a way that we can live where we're actually doing good. In beaver's keystone role in an ecosystem, they're really being quite selfish when they build dams to make ponds. It's for their protection. And so they have deep enough water they can hide from predators. They can have an underwater entrance to their lodge but they are doing something that is very helpful and very good. And I think today we hear so many stories of humans just causing harm and being detrimental in everything we do to nature and the other creatures around us. So I really like this idea of learning to live in a way where, by taking care of ourselves, we also take care of the nature around us. I love that we can still stumble upon other species that can surprise us and that we can learn from. Beavers are very social. They're monogamous. They're fabulous parents. You can see them teaching their children. They'll have little babies on their backs. Uh, I've stumbled upon a few areas where you could see some really poor dam building off to the side of the real dam where perhaps the the first year kids were practicing trying to imitate mom and dad. They really are lovely little critters. They have little personalities and they're very friendly. They're not aggressive or mean they're a little bit shy you can tell they'll slap their tail on the water if they get scared but it's really fun to sneak out to a pond in the evening right before the sun sets and you'll see them come out of the lodge and start to swim around the pond and cut down little branches and then they slap the water and i almost drop my camera and they dive under and hide out for a while
0: Sarah Konigsberg and her team are producing The Beaver Believers. It's a documentary about the work of six people to reestablish beaver in the American West. And we expect this film to be out sometime in 2015. Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, James Kerwood, and Jennifer Marquis. Our show was engineered by Tom Tiger, with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flatt, and John Jessel. Allison lierish composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve
3: Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, Makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. www.stonyfield.com
0: PRI
3: Public Radio International